Welcome everybody to episode 104 of the Metabilis 2 podcast, which features David and Ben talking to each other about their favorite TV show. <laughs> yeah, which is Doctor Who this week. Oh, it is. This week is Doctor Who. This, this and week every is. other week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and today we're going to do a overview, a little uh, survey Teaser. of the land, because we are going to be talking about Ace. Uh, Ace. The, we're doing Ace Marathon here, interrupted by Gallifrey and any other interesting thing that might pop up. But we are focusing in on the Ace stories here in the first part of the 2019 off year. Mm-hmm. And we will be looking at Dragonfire next week, uh, which is Ace's debut story. But we kind of thought it would be interesting, at least for us to discuss... How did we get to Ace and where we were in fandom at the time that... uh, Ace appeared on the scene. Yeah, and whether that captured our interest or not. Yes. I guess I will start off and say I really don't recall Ace being announced because going back with the 18-month hiatus that preceded the Trial of the Time Lord and then Trial of the Time Lord... Well, Doctor Who fandom had kind of strayed away from it, and it was busy with high school at the time, and just wasn't wasn't following the news coming out of Britain. Um, so combined with, at that time, there was also Pertwee on uh, public broadcasting KTCA. Oh, you, so you, you were watching Pertwee at that point. God, you lucky things. I was watching Pertwee and probably uh, Troughton or, you know, earlier really? Doctor Who. Yeah. Wow. God, that's amazing. No, I mean, apart from, you know, something like the five faces of Doctor Who, it wasn't until the 90s that we got Pertwee back on the screen. Um the BBC had this horror of repeats. Repeats were like mm-hmm. the worst thing that could happen. Um, they always used to get hauled over the coals if they showed a program that was on before, if they showed it again. Right. And they, it took a while for people to realize that actually that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I remember when you and I first met and you had like a terrible cold. You were in Minneapolis living with Amanda and I had brought over a bunch of off-the-air Doctor Who's, and it had been the first time you had seen some of these since you were a child, which yeah. which kind of blew blew my mind because you were in the land of Doctor Who. Yeah, well, the, the land of Doctor Who, but there was always about new Who, new. It always had to be new, mm-hmm. um, and that did blow my mind. Actually, it was like blimey, I can see some, I can see some of the great, some of those great Pertwee shows, which I don't. Yes, I said, you know, I tried some of them. I uh, really probably hadn't even. Which which ones were they? Can you remember which ones? You bought over. I I honestly can't remember, and those yeah. VHSs have long, long since been yeah. replaced by the commercial ones. It could have been even Tom Baker ones, but even still, yeah, they, yeah. they weren't ones you had seen in, a, in, in quite a while. In quite a while. So my, uh, so I, uh, um, the hiatus was when was the hiatus? The hiatus was eighty five. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Hiatus. Doo, 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 doo. Well, season 22 ended in March of 1985, and then the trial, trial of the Time Lord didn't start up till September 1986. So it was between yeah. it was 85, 86 time frame. Yeah, so I'd, just, I'd basically just gone away to college at that mm-hmm. point, and I hadn't enjoyed the... Well, actually, no, I had enjoyed... I'd, I'd enjoyed bits of... Um, Colin Baker's pre-hiatus uh, season, mm-hmm. but um, 
it was actually, it was kind of difficult to watch it at college, which was weird. A, it was on during the week. Right. Uh, which meant, I mean, it's, you know, college students, blah, blah, blah. So, you mm-hmm. know, maybe Saturday night would, would have been even harder, but it wasn't actually. Um, it was during <laughs> the week that was difficult because it was a pretty intense college experience and we right. had to crank out one and a half essays every two weeks. I'm sorry, one and a half essays every week. Mm-hmm. And the evenings, we were basically, you go down to the bar for a drink and then it's like straight back to your room to like start writing stuff. Right. Um, so it was really hard to watch Doctor Who. And the other thing was, as I think I've said before, is, is it was only me and someone else who I didn't really like that much who, <laughs> who were watching it. So it right. I, sometimes I would go and try and watch it. But really, uh, uh, the kind of Baker years and the hiatus year and the Trial of Time Lord year, yeah. then into, I think, the first year of McCoy really i was i was just doing other things basically mm-hmm. um right and you know i'd tried to join the the university science fiction society because i thought i'd meet people who were interesting and they'd turn out to be a bunch of nerds uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like oh i'm not gonna spend time with these people so again i probably should have made a better effort um mm-hmm. but you know uh i can't speak for your first years at going away to college um Mm -hmm. but certainly mine were mainly booze and women (laughs) rather than doctor who and women and doctor who at that time really did Did not not intersect intersect in any kind of meaningful way which is really kind of extraordinary when you look at it was almost woman repellent (laughs) yeah it was it was slight it was slightly like that which is weird especially as you you look at it now yeah exactly so uh yeah i mean my there was my my fame I'm just going to do an anecdote here. My my famous story about <laughs> joining the Oxford um, Science Fiction, which is which was the Oxford Science Fiction Society, was an illustrious society. They had a huge library filled with books. It was started by mm-hmm. Brian Aldiss, um, and Brian Aldiss was still vaguely involved with it because he lived in Oxford. Um, right. For my edification, who is oh Brian Brian, sorry Brian Aldiss, um, very very well known science fiction writer. I mean, a kind of a, okay. a, a famous writer, a very experimental. And uh, not kind of, you know, Harry Turtle Dove trash, but, you know, actual <laughs> real literature, um, <laughs> uh, science fiction, and uh, also a scholar of the genre as well. A very kind of important figure. He's dead now. I think he died a couple of years ago. But I remember the first meeting I went to, like, I got in this conversation with this person, and they asked me whether I liked Dungeons and Dragons. Um, right. And I went, no, I can't stand that crap. Um, and then, <laughs> But then I discovered what he was actually asking me was, do I like Dungeons and Dragons or Wizards and Warlocks or like any other kind of <laughs> role-playing method? Right. So immediately I kind of blotted my copybook by not being into role-playing games. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so that's my anecdote. Yeah, you, you, you did not fit in, I guess. Didn't fit in. I never went back, which was a shame. I should have done that. I tried it. I very other. When you first go to college, I mean, certainly I know a big university at Oxford, you join as many societies as, as as possible to see see which ones will fit. And um, of course, probably right. now there's a Doctor Who society that I could have joined, but there wasn't then. Mm. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Uh, just yeah. just that I'm I'm surprised that you weren't bit by uh, role playing at least Dungeons and Dragons. With was it just that? It, 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 what was it? Because it would seem like with your interest in medieval studies that it would intersect sort of well. That's true. I'll have to say I never. I, I'm my wife, who actually doesn't listen to this podcast, um, <laughs> uh, will will be able to attest. I'm not very good at games. Hmm. I'm not a natural rule follower, and 
the both and I had friends at school, you know, who try. This is my high school who, right. who said, "Oh, you got to come play D and D with us." So I'm like, "Fine, okay," because you know, all right, mm-hmm. I will. Um, but I just couldn't bear the idea of like other people telling me what to do. Ah, like you know, having a dungeon master who says, "Like now, you've got to move three steps down the corridor, and then you find a thing." <laughs> it's like, well, why can't I right. just like magic? It's magic. Why can't I just magic a machine gun and like kill all the monsters? Right. <laughs> this is so. Well, why do I have to wait for that person to have their turn? I'm supposed to be walking down a corridor. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so I'm really pretty bad at games because I don't like rules. You're too much of an anarchist. I am an anarchist, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I always look for the creative way out of any kind of situation, and in, basically mm-hmm. in any kind of game, um, you know, the cre- mm-hmm. like. I'm I'm very much a Captain Kirk figure. The the, the only way to beat <laughs> only way to beat an intractable problem is to cheat right. in a game. And so you were always always looking for the options. Exactly, I, I, I'm Kobayashi Maru kind of guys. Who that's who I am. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, do, do, do you ever do? Did you ever do role playing games? Yeah, for for me, Doctor Who and Dungeons and Dragons really were kind of uh, go hand in hand. Okay. And, and like Doctor Who monsters would wind up in D and D campaigns. The one that really stands out is the Ogre. Oh yeah. The Ogre were um, monsters that uh, my high school D and D group met. So that was nice. That was interesting, and we defeated them pretty much the same way that the doctor did. We tricked them into falling into pits or off cliffs, and yeah, they're not that smart. The ogre, you can usually trick <laughs> no, them. They to, aren't <laughs> trick them to falling fall, just just basically falling over. Probably mm-hmm. would 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 actually right. stop them. I guess they could then roll at you, couldn't they? I don't know. Not quite <laughs> sure exactly how they work, like mo- mobility wise. <laughs> And but sadly, we never never encountered the Taran Wood Beast in our adventures because oh, yes. that would have been yeah yeah or <laughs> that would have been or the what what's the, the the magma the magma beast that's a that's a kind of a, a cave creature mm, of some kind yeah caves of Andrazan yeah there right? you go yeah yeah. yeah yeah so it was it was selective we did fight Drashigs once and uh, I'm trying to think what else uh, a lot of a lot of giant spiders but those were more par for the course and right D, not, but were they were, were they Metabolus three spiders or were they just kind of generic mm, giant spiders they, they had crystals but I don't know if the dungeon master had the knowledge uh, made the, well or had made the connection he, right he also watched doctor who right, so right right in retrospect it probably was inspired by that just by having the the crystals there but yeah. i didn't make the connection at the time i mean i mean just to kind of wind even further back i mean you know through the 80s i mean doctor who was kind of a dying fall for me a little bit i mean again mm-hmm. when i i was at uh, again, regular listeners of the podcast already know our, our personal history is very intimately, but I was at a boarding school and, you know, right. I was absolutely astounded to discover that no, <laughs> nobody else in my house at school watched Doctor Who. So I would sit there, watch mm-hmm. it like alone on, you know, early on a Saturday evening thinking because like, the TV was like in a hut like hmm. elsewhere, like down at the bottom of a field somewhere. So you'd have to like hmm. trog down to this hut and it was cold um, mm. And you know, I was sitting there watching uh, Peter Davison like do something, and uh, right. the last season of Tom actually, I think, was the first, the first year I was at school. And um, yeah, it was like, wow, why am I doing this? Like everyone else is out having fun and doing stuff, and I'm sitting here watching a show. So yeah, it was, so then it kind of yeah, it kind of moved huh. downwards basically. So you did I mean, just uh, yeah. it, it became hard harder to become a fan when you're not living at home and not have regular access to the television. 
Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, because my school was a particular kind of school and it was the early 80s, I mean, you weren't encouraged to watch television. Mm -hmm. Um, Watching television was seen to be a, a, you know, a thing that you probably shouldn't be doing. Right. Um, So that's, again, why the TV was, you know, in a hut, Mm -hmm. like in the middle of a field. (laughs) I mean, literally, it was in a hut in the middle of a field. Um, I'm not I'm not joking. Wow. So, yeah, you had to get a key from the housemaster to, like, go down to, like, open up. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. And it just seemed like too much of a faff, to be honest, uh-huh. to watch Doc 2. It did get slightly better when I moved to a different house because you lived in these houses complex. It's, it's, like, it's like Harry Potter, basically. Oh, so uh, were you yeah. in what, Gryffindor house or what house were you in? Yeah, cause they, what they did, <laughs> they sorted us out by were you evil, good, fat... <laughs> Or clever? Mm-hmm. No, hang on. What? 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 I what have are the no houses? idea. I've, I've watched one Harry Potter movie, maybe two Harry Potter, one Harry Potter movie, and so all, all I know is Quidditch is uh, what. That yeah, game. I mean, I do like it in Harry Potter. They put all the fat people in one house. That seems very sensible. Mm. Mm. Um, okay. Is it Hufflepuff? That's all the fat kids. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, so they have all these different houses. So I mean, I then moved into this house that was uh, uh, kind of central to the school, and that had like a creepy basement because the building was like. 300 years old mm-hmm. but it had this super cool creepy basement and in the creepy basement that's where the tv was so actually you were able to go down and hang out with like other people in the creepy basement the problem with watching doctor who then uh being away at school is that a couple of things one of which is it started out being on when we were supposed to be working so classes went on into the evening mm-hmm. so you couldn't watch it because you were basically at school so that, of course, made it hard. And, of course, with no VCRs or repeats, right. basically, it was impossible right. to watch it. Uh, I think, um, I'm trying to remember, then I think maybe they changed the time slightly or something. Mm-hmm. But th- I, th- I think it was on maybe on slightly earlier. But then it got difficult because it was on at the same time as the old Grey Whistle test. Oh, so, so we, all the kind of, everyone wanted to watch that. So all the all the elder kids, mm-hmm. you know, all the, you know, who are into BBC Two and like watching, I don't know, Whistle Test nonsense, um, <laughs> were like, no, we've got to watch Whistle Test. You can't watch Doc Two, that's for children. Right. So, you know. They wanted to, to watch the bands. They wanted to watch the band. So we, even though the bands were crap because it was the <laughs> 80s, so then we had to slink away and couldn't watch Doctor Who. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. So for me, the 80s, everything was on delay coming across the Atlantic. So even even like Doctor Who magazine, first off, it was just obscenely expensive. I remember it was beyond what I could uh, scrape together in petty cash or you know just allowances right. or odd jobs. So I would always be looking at in... Uh, comic book stores, uh, Schindler in the Twin Cities. Oh, Schindler's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Schindler's, yeah, Schindler's in the Twin Cities, and so I would, I would look at it there and go, "Is this really worth my money?" Right. So I remember getting one copy of a Doctor Who magazine for a birthday gift, and it had the transparent Dalek in from Revelation. And I poured over that. There was a Troughton interview. Davros was back. And I remembered Davros from Resurrection in Destiny and and Genesis. And every time time Davros had had an outing, it just seemed like he was uh, more and more cartoony and less less scary or less less the evil genius villain that he was in Genesis. So it was a... Uh, a lot of diminishing returns for me for if, with Davros and Doctor Who magazine reading it furtively in the uh, it, it was in the gaming section at Schinders in uh, White Bear Lake where I went to the 
It was off White Bear Lake Avenue somewhere back in the right. 80s. And by the time with the with the hiatus and I remember season 21 especially, we had just come off the anniversary special, the 20th anniversary, The Five Doctors, which was uh, exciting to see Troughton and Pertwee. But it was disappointing not to see Tom. And, you know, I understand. It was, yeah. I understand his reasons for not doing it. But that was kind of a letdown for me. And uh, Warriors of the Deep I liked. But then we had Awaken The Awakening. And I just started to drift away. It just, I didn't feel it was as engaging for me at that age than the earlier stories of the 70s or even the stuff that was going on with Pertwee that I was either getting through novels or watching on KTCA. Right. Well, I mean, I can remember, you know, picking up Doctor Who magazine from time to time, but then putting it back again, because, mm-hmm. you know, and I think this comes on to, you know, the difficulties, I think, with um, the production team at that time. It was all very, very focused on the show as it was happening. If it had been more kind of Pertwee stuff or even kind of earlier Tom stuff or even more, you know, Hartnell and Trout and stuff, I probably would have picked up the magazine. But it was all like, you know, new stuff, and which I wasn't in really super engaged with. I mean, I think, again, I think I've probably told this story before, but I was so unreasonably excited when I heard about Warriors of the Deep. Because mm-hmm. um, Sea Devils? Because it was the Sea Devils and the Silurians. Um, and again, as, as, again, as I said before, I think, you know, my, my prime experience of the Pertwee years, pre-having a access to a, a VHS player was mm-hmm. through the was through the target novelizations and mm-hmm. those novelizations by Malcolm Hulk of the Sea Devils and of the Silurians are absolutely astoundingly good and I love those books and I still do so I was so excited to have those those monsters back right. um and so disappointed uh, I mean, I was so excited. That, I mean, I actually, uh, it was this again, my parents vaguely disapproved of us watching television, but they were very generously allowed. We were actually, uh, we, we'd gone to my um, godmother's house to see her, but they let me slip away from kind of, you know, the chat to go and watch Doctor Who. Um, and I was thinking like, wow, I really didn't enjoy that that much. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it was because it, it was all, you know, the, the sea devils and the Silurians didn't look right. Right. Um, as they continue not to do, to not to look right in, in the car. <laughs> they further <laughs> the, diverge. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I, I was disappointed by that. And I remember also being vaguely disappointed by the five doctors. Again, mm-hmm. no Tom. And it was kind of obvious that there was no Tom. It was just, it just, it just didn't really work that well for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the five doctors. Haven't watched it for a while. Still don't really mm-hmm. super care for it that much. Right. Um, it just seemed to be kind of, I, I think actually what I didn't care for about the five doctors is that obviously it was centered primarily around Peter Davison. And I, mm-hmm. I'd begun not to enjoy Peter Davison's mm-hmm. tenure as, as the doctor. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was not very fond of Turlow when Turlow came on board and I found myself drifting further and further away from doctor who our contemporary doctor who in the eighties, as JNT continued his run as producer. Yes. JNT was the problem for me, son, even though I right. really didn't know who he was at that no. point. No. Well, that's the common thread. Yeah. The, the further he got away from Tom, the more he was into, I think, 
uh, fan conventions in the U.S., which I didn't partake in. Yeah. So he was always over in the States promoting Doctor Who and getting uh, talent to come over, actors to come over to conventions or or then his Christmas pantomimes that he always was trying to I right. think cast or get his you know he had Davison in it he had Colin Baker in his pantomimes uh, he Bonnie seemed Langford. yeah he just seemed more interested in being producer than producing if right right and I mean this is this is kind of a perspective gained over the past thirty years looking back at it but. I just was drifting away because it just wasn't speaking to me as something enjoyable to watch. And then, which compounded it, is there was Doctor Who that I was really enjoying, looking at the black and white stuff of Trout and the few stories that had survived there, and then the run of Pertwee, which I was really into. Right. You know, compare and contrast, it wasn't measuring up. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It it wasn't as good, basically. For for us. (laughs) Yeah, and I... (laughs) You know, and it's really hard to, it's really hard to kind of pass that out because mm-hmm. um, obviously there's the imprinting. If you hit it at the right age, it kind of imprints on you anyway. Right. But as, a, as again, I mean, I think I hadn't watched a lot of the early Pertwee's and I hadn't been alive for Hartnell right. or Troughton, but I was fascinated by those because, of course, I couldn't ever get to, or I didn't think I would ever get to see them. So that made that era very, very intriguing and fascinating because mm-hmm. you want to always imagine, you know, one's imagination <laughs> is in general better than, than anything that can ever be on TV, especially right. in your low-budget show like Doctor Who. Right. And uh, and again, I'd love the novelizations of the Pertwee era so much mm-hmm. um, that, the, the, you know, I was just immensely curious about those. And then, of course, I'd loved all of Tom Baker's because he was so good in the role. Mm-hmm. So it's it started to go out of my life for my own kind of age reasons but mm-hmm. as again as as i think we've said you know i think jnt had this idea that it was a show for fans of the show right not a show for everybody and what was awesome about doctor who in the 60s and the 70s is that it was a show for absolutely everybody and mm-hmm. i think that's what uh russell t davis realized and that was his genius is right. that this is a show that everybody watched not just people who like it right and i mean that was the i think that that to me was the problem with with john nathan turner i don't think he really understood that well he and sayward had very differing uh, views on i think doctor who and sayward really wanted it to be uh this gritty you know to <laughs> it's our favorite word to uh with eric sayward but sayward wanted it to be gritty a, reboot yeah a, a gritty cop show with mercenaries or gunslingers and he really didn't want doctor who and he wasn't a fan of colin baker at all and he tried to minimize colin completely from the his own series his own show yeah he didn't really want doctor who to be in doctor who right um he wanted it to be about Lytton and people with guns and cybermen and you know he really wanted to do another show entirely which again it also becomes really weird because i think as everybody has now been able to kind of vaguely realize that in some ways colin baker was a mary sue for john nathan turner with the you know the brightly colored costume right and the hair (laughs) and the kind of not gay flamboyantness which was John T- Nathan Turner's flamboyance, but just flamboyance in general. Mm-hmm. So that was weird. And, I, and again, I mean, you know, I, I guess I haven't read enough of the kind of recent Kiss and Tell. Uh, well, certainly, you know, uh, the I haven't read the John Nathan Turner biography, but I mean, 
I think it's difficult when you have a producer and a script editor, i.e., you know, the show running team, who basically stop getting on with each other. Right. That's got to be the recipe for things starting to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. When did you find out about the hiatus? Was it found out in the news, probably? Or <sighs> you see, I, I don't know. I don't. I wasn't really watching the news. Mm-hmm. I guess. Wait a second. So season 22 was, what are the dates of that? Well, that ran from January 1985 through the end of March 1985. Yes. Yes. I think that was my last year of high school. So mm-hmm. again, so again, I wasn't really paying attention. Right. I don't, I, I think I can remember sporadically watching episodes of that season. Mm-hmm. Because it was also the other the other thing is they is they'd split it. It was now you know two two forty five minute episodes, which I didn't really understand why that was necessary either. Right, right. I mean, I guess in retrospect, I've always vaguely assumed it was so that Nathan Turner had hopes that he would be able to sell it to some American network, so hmm. it would you know fit into an hour's worth of of TV with ad breaks. Um, which is odd because it he was already or Time Life or was already selling it to the PBS station, so they were getting revenue from the United States on Doctor Who. I'm pretty sure that he had ambitions for it to be an actual network TV show. I'm mm-hmm. sure he wasn't happy with it being on PBS, because mm-hmm. I think even then he knew, you know, PBS was a pretty kind of low-rent um, low rent outfit. You know, Smaller he wanted, viewership, too. Yeah, he wanted it to be on like NBC or CBS or something, <laughs> is, is what he wanted. Um, yeah, good luck on that one. Um and then the last one before the hiatus was Attack of the Cybermen, which actually I did watch a little bit. Revelation because... was the last one. Attack started the season. Oh, Attack started the season. Well, I remember I watched Attack because mm-hmm. it had um, an actress I was very fond of. Um, oh, well, she she played the Cryon, right? Yeah, she was in Blue Peter. Um, Sarah Green? Uh, Sarah Green. Lovely yeah, okay. Sarah Green. Okay. Very big, big fan of Sarah Green. But then, of course... <laughs> <laughs> They they cover up with a big plastic. plastic big plastic mask. Like, who is that? Mm-hmm. Oh, Sarah Green. Yeah, I guess. Right. Um, just like getting you know Michael Kilgariff back to play the cyber leader. Like, who what's, is the it? Uh, what's the point? What's he's just fatter. He's, <laughs> you could easily get someone as big who is thinner. Uh, anyway, anyway, whatever. He was in the, what the Hufflepuff house and <laughs> was in the Hufflepuff house. Um, I think I also tried to watch the two doctors. Because, you know, I, I was curious to see Patrick Troughton. And again, right. Patrick Troughton, to me, looked too old. Plus, For, they have... Yeah, why they... I mean, they grayed his hair. Yeah. Which didn't make sense at all to me. No, it made no sense whatsoever. And I was... I mean, of course, I love the Sontarans. And they had those ridiculous Sontarans. It's that mm-hmm. whole thing, that, again, we've talked about, whereby that that you bring back things to please fans, but mm-hmm. you bring them back in a such a perfunctory and like badly thought out way that all it does is confuse people who aren't <laughs> fans and alienate people who are fans. Right. Like, you know, if you bring back the Sontarans, don't bring them back in a way that you can see the gap between their neck collars and their, you know, and their, <laughs> and their spacesuits. Don't make them eight feet tall either. And don't make them eight feet tall. <laughs> you know, yeah, they are at least eight feet tall um, because that, because that confuses people who aren't fans. And as I said, irritates people who are fans. You, mm-hmm. you, you win, you win nothing. Right. Um, except a nice trip to Barcelona. Yeah, except a free trip to Barcelona, <laughs> you know. And again, I think I can remember, I think I watched the first episode of Re- Revelation of the Daleks and just mm-hmm. didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch another one. I actually now really rate that one. I kind of really enjoy Revelation of the Daleks. I think the performances are, are actually really interesting, but mm-hmm. they are sort of ostensibly off-putting. <laughs> 
<laughs> off-putting mm-hmm. when you watch Revelation, especially if you know you're not really expecting those kind of right. strange performances from the, the actors, especially from um, Clive Swift and Jenny Thomason. It's like, hang on, what the hell mm. is that? See, um, yeah, yeah. The, the the performance I remember the most on uh, Revelation was Alexi Sales as the DJ, and that's what stood out to me as a revelation and that and the crap cliffhanger of the styrofoam gravestone i think that's why i actually said i'm not watching that's a star <laughs> that's ridiculous that's a styrofoam um uh, polystyrene uh, thing falling on someone um and calm uh, yeah i mean I, everyone loved alexi alexi Sale was like a huge alternative mm-hmm. comedian you know until mm-hmm. the stockbroker and all that kind of stuff and he still is a really interesting guy but right. yeah again he's not the greatest actor he did fine as the DJ, though. He did I fine. Mean, it wasn't a, a intense role. Yeah, I was actually a fan, relatively, of William Gaunt because I liked his sitcom No Place Like Home, mm. um, mm-hmm. where where he was uh, the dad. Uh, yeah, he was the dad, and he was really good in it. Mm-hmm. It was a good sitcom that. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, it's this, uh, it's that Nathan Turner thing of getting people who you're not expecting. Right to be in something, to be in something, mm-hmm. um, which sometimes works, but again, I think was probably more off. It was, I think it was alienating to fans because we wanted our show to be serious. So, like Alexi Sale and William Gaunt walking in mm-hmm. makes it non-serious, and it's confusing to non-fans because they're like, "Why is the dad from that sitcom suddenly <laughs> in Doctor Who?" So again, mm. it just really doesn't work in or for both sides yeah the the what was it no place like home or yeah uh, no place like home yeah yeah that that was being broadcast on oh, was ktca it? so i oh, had interesting i had seen that face before i don't know if i had made that connection that he was the guy when i watched revelation but he seemed oddly familiar so even in the states he was uh for for certain viewers of public television he was a familiar face Right. Interesting. Interesting. The, yeah. the the one out of season 22 that I probably remember the most watching it was The Mark of the Rani. Really? I See, I literally did not watch that at all. Um, mm. I guess that, what, what I'm looking at Wikipedia, so that was February 1985. I don't know what I was doing, mm-hmm. but I wasn't watching Doctor Who. Yeah. So that, that's the only one that I really remember clearly watching. And... It is about Stevenson, and they really didn't have any steam engines in there, and I was disappointed. <laughs> disappointed yeah, by that. That is disappointing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's it seemed like a missed opportunity there. Well, it's you know you go to Ironbridge and you know, you film it like you know where all this stuff kind of happened, but right. you don't actually include any of this. I don't know. Yeah. Right. It was all supposed to be sim- before, and it just uh, this is this is. Uh, uh, anticlimactic, put it, put to put it at put it the least, and yeah, exactly. I, you know, the hiatus. I, it was, you know, the news was the only conduit for news was the KTCA magazine, which said we don't have a new episode or we don't have new episodes of Doctor Who available, so we are we are going to go back to the classics. So we're gonna we're gonna start with Pertwee, or we're gonna start with Tom again. And play again and sort of like, oh, okay, that's okay. I don't mind watching that again. Or Doctor Who magazine, which was really expensive. And you're not going to get a clear picture out of what's going on with the Doctor Who production from Doctor Who magazine, sadly. It's it's more of a... It's more of a organizational mouthpiece than a, uh, a fan-driven yeah. publication in the right. 80s. So knew something was going on. Uh, certainly didn't catch anything like the doctor and 
distress thing that uh, Ian Levine helped organize and all the protests that they were just you know fandom was growing Tom was really popular Tom was Doctor Who in the U.S. and they weren't making new shows with Tom Baker anyway so what was of course it's not doing well (laughs) yeah and I again I'm trying to see uh, the only real way to find out about so the BBC wasn't covering Doctor Who particularly anymore at that point right and the coverage of Doctor Who was primarily oriented towards the tabloid press tabloid newspapers which was mm-hmm. new which were, of course were newspapers i i wasn't reading right um you know i was reading the times or the independent um i had no independent started then so it was probably the times i guess maybe they made us read maybe it's the telegraph as well mm-hmm. but you know i there was no coverage of that so i there was no real way for me to find out about any of that kind of stuff now, i mean this... I, I i don't actually rem- even remember knowing about doctor in distress at all Mm-hmm. Was this the the school that was having you read the Times? Well, I mean, the school would buy us newspapers. Mm, okay, but they wouldn't buy tabloid newspapers because you know <laughs> we were a school where right. you weren't. Well, for a start, you know, the Sun and the Star had naked women in it, so they mm-hmm. weren't going to buy us those, mm-hmm. um, which is good actually. Thank you. You know, and they weren't <laughs> going to buy us the Daily Mail or the Daily Express because mm-hmm. they were trash. Um, and they wouldn't have the Guardian because it was too far left. <laughs> so yeah, I think that was maybe. I think we probably had the Observer on Sunday. Well, that's a Guardian. That was more, but, well, it wasn't. It uh, wasn't then. It wasn't mm-hmm. the Guardian then. It was mm-hmm. its own thing. Okay. Um, so yeah, you know, it was actually unless you really sort it out. And I think uh, I don't really think they had Doctor Who magazine in Smiths in the town at school either. So. There was there was no way to find mm-hmm. out about Doctor Who. I, I wasn't really in a place where I could find out about mm-hmm. what was going on in the show. And in, at this time in my life, in, in in the teenage years, there's so much going on that really 18 months of Doctor Who, it, it, it wasn't noticeable. The only thing that was noticeable that there wasn't new Doctor Who. This was Doctor Who from the 70s. But I was enjoying that, and that was okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this is, this is actually, you know, a coefficient of being a teenager. It's like you're, you're right. kind of busy. There's stuff going on. The complaints were being led by the older fans, the the fans in their 20s yeah. who had nothing better to do. I don't know. <laughs> we're, um, we're, we're, we're looking at you, Mr. Christopher Chibnall. <laughs> oh, he was a useful, useful tool uh, <laughs> for Michael Grade to cancel the series because... They invited disgruntled fans on basically... Point, points of view was the show. To say that the show was sucky and crappy and wasn't living up to their expectations to further justify that it's not popular. Exactly. Plus, they all look like the worst kind of nerds you've <laughs> ever seen. I mean, that footage of Chibnall is like, oh my God. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was two reasons why it should be... Okay, these are the people who care about the show. And even these people who do care about the show don't like right. it. So... Who's it for? Right. Yeah. You know, in some ways, I mean, you know, Michael Grade is a kind of hate figure amongst fandom, but I think he might have. I think he. The decision he made to cancel it at that point. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I, th- I think. I think. I. No, carry on. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I think he wanted it gone. He didn't want to put money towards it for the BBC production because, in compared to American productions of. Uh, 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 next generation. Uh, well, next generation wasn't, I think, until like eighty-eight or eighty-nine. So, it, oh, but okay, like, right. like sci-fi movies. He was always comparing it to sci-fi movies, to Star Wars, and yeah. there's just 
at that time, especially television and cinema, were very different budgets. You you had maybe have one show every four years or one movie every three four years, and then you have this uh, weekly. You had to have a season of Doctor Who, so right. I think what he could have done is perhaps either commission a movie. I, I don't know if BBC could have commissioned movies at then, but just do, okay, we're, we're going to take the budget and we're going to just do one-off. He could have fired J&T at that point because I don't think the problem was Colin Baker. I think the problem was J&T and his Mary Sue with the costume and not getting along with a script writer or script editor right. and then putting fans in charge of, you know, this is... You know, he wanted he wanted to be Mr. Popular. He wanted to have all these fans fawning over. Right. He wanted to control access to the show, invite them up to the gallery. He enjoyed being producer, but he wasn't wasn't really focused in on the quality of the product per se. He was more interested yeah. in keeping it alive, but rather than focusing on let's make this the best Doctor Who ever, in my opinion. Yes, I mean he liked he liked as you said he liked being the producer of the show because there were a bunch of spin-offs from that that he enjoyed. Perks. But he yeah. really couldn't care less about what well, I mean he really wasn't mm-hmm. fighting for the show to be the best that he could. I think perhaps until he was able to hook up with Carmel. And I think actually this is one interesting thing about Grade. I think Grade was probably right to cancel it. Right. Or at least right to Say, okay, this isn't going well. Well, he was going to cancel it, but there was the fan backlash that they just couldn't... They just couldn't pull the trigger, I guess. Well, and I think the problem with Grade is then he what he didn't do was then apply himself to making the show better. Right. Um, he simply kind of bought it back with with the same team who had just who was even now twice as dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. And what what he should have done is you know he should have got rid of JNT and got and actually got in a different producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he wasn't interested in doing that. And I think right. wasn't there was wasn't that well, kind no of, one wanted the job either. No one wanted the job. Yeah. Well, I, which you know far bit from me to draw comparisons but you wonder you know the appointment of chibnall in the mm. for the current like mm. you know i'm trying to think you know who else would want that job right now well i had heard rumors well i think there's a lot of people that would have liked it i think that the bbc feels that it needs to be someone with fan credibility or who's written for the show and right. i'm not sure that's the right decision i'm not sure that's the right i think we're i think we're veering into the arena of the unwell to quote one of my favorite films <laughs> um, i think we're i think we're veering into kind of you know mid 80s territory here i think the bbc uh, maybe this is subject for another podcast, but I'm I'm getting a vague sense of deja vu at the moment. Well, oddly enough, that uh, during during the hiatus, uh, Michael Grade uh, contacted Sidney Newman for show notes or whatever advice on how to bring back the show, and one of Sidney Newman's uh, suggestion was to have Patrick Troughton return as the Doctor, and for a brief while, and then. Uh, in Sidney Newman's word, metamorphosis into a woman. Bring so. Patrick Trout back as a woman. Why not? <laughs> well, not as a I woman, know, I'm but he you. would. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was certainly something that was kicked around since uh, Tom Baker jokingly uh, led the press on yeah. that maybe his yeah. replacement would be a woman. Yeah. So uh, I think the, the falling out between Sayward and. And JNT with Sayward you know, basically burning all bridges in television by torching his producer and the leading man uh, 
It was good that he was going because he was certainly unhappy, and it allowed for Andrew Cartmill, a young a young man who was had something to prove or was more interested in producing Doctor Who uh, yeah. rather than yeah. cop dramas or mercenary yeah. uh, mercenary stories. And it took two or three. Well, it took. It really took three stories for him to, to leave, leave his, mark. Yep. his mark and set up Ace. Yeah, so he inherited Time in the Ronnie, which is something that J&T uh. commissioned from Pip and Jane Baker. And then a little bit more influence on Paradise Towers. And then we had Delta and the Bannerman, which had the kind of the dry run or the kind of a brainstorming of uh, the Ace-type character with... Yep. Uh, uh, it was Ray. Ray, right? that's Ray. it. Yeah, the kind of tomboyish character. Yeah, yeah, who wore a leather jacket and a motorcycle and uh, rode a motorcycle. So it, it was kind of proto Ace. And then the very next story, which we're going to review or talk about next week, is Dragonfire, where young Ace is introduced. So Michael Gray did have an impact by uh, putting it on hiatus by getting rid of Colin Baker, uh, the chaos and the death of Bob Holmes made uh, made it so that Sayward just had had it. Yeah. He didn't want the vision that he and Bob Holmes had uh, designed for this trial season, the, the conclusion, leaving basically leaving Doctor Who's fate in a cliffhanger. Yeah, uh, He didn't want that tampered with or altered since uh, Holmes died uh, yeah. and then then leaving. That, that was a good, good sign, but grade then saying well we aren't canceling it the season 24 is on you got to get this on and and j and t not really having a script editor or only kind of tentatively having a script from pip and jane baker with time in the ronnie yeah. um bbc bungling it you know if they had colin baker doing season 24 then there would have been a proper regeneration uh, you know what it did is set up Andrew Cartmill. And yeah. from what I saw, Doctor Who started to get its mojo back. It seemed to be yeah. more familiar Doctor Who yeah. once season 25 kicked in, which is uh, the season following Dragonfire. I think at the very least, you had someone who was script editing the show, who actually liked the show and cared about the show itself. Who liked the character, the main who character. Liked the character, rather than, you know, I'm always confused why Saywood gets a, such a big pass, such a pass in fandom. I think it might be an age thing, but, you know, he was so, to my mind, massively uninterested in the show itself and so much more interested in what the show wasn't than what it was. It's, mm -hmm. It seemed to me always to be a huge problem. And, you know, Cartnell, for whatever his faults were, were like, uh, you know, he really, you know, he was, a, he was a prototype RTD. You know, he was a fan of the show mm -hmm. who was now in charge of, of, of an important aspect of the show. Yeah. And so we will see what happens when you uh, put a fan in charge of the show who grew up with the show yeah. and let him loose, give him keys to the kingdom. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one, let's, I mean, let's cover Mel quickly, who was, mm. you know, the companion. Bonnie Langford, yeah. Mysteriously introduced during Trial of a Time Lord in kind of a sort of timey-wimey way, right. which I think is fine. But I think people complain about it, but I think that's a great way to introduce a companion, to be mm -hmm. honest. And I think it's really instructive, a um, couple of things, one of which she was someone who was 
involved in JT's side business as you know producer <laughs> of pantomimes mm-hmm. um, and she was a very very well-known child actress mm-hmm. child actor primarily from just william which was a really successful show on itv and you know her performance and character in those first well in trial of the time lord i think she was okay but you know those first three uh, mccoys was just kind of tooth suckingly awful hmm. um but fast forward 20 years or so and you listen to her big finishes she's amazing and I think a lot of this, and you know, and you know, we can then talk about you know how so much better Colin Baker is in Big Finish than he ever was in Doc Two, and it's about the script, mm-hmm. um, and it's about the direction, and it's about the production, and it's about people who care about the show. And you know, actors are you know they're they're pretty much sponges. I mean, they'll do what you tell them to do, and if you aren't telling them to do the right things, they will right. they will give a bad performance. Or or not a bad performance. They would they will they will try to give their best performance, but if you don't guide them, mm-hmm. they're going to start to fall apart. They're going to give the performance that is of the script that is written. And if yeah. you have a crap script, crap script, they're going right. to give a yeah, they, there's gonna, what what can they work with? There's not Yes, ex- exactly. Even the best actor can only elevate a script so much through his or her performance. Yeah, and there's some great big finishes with Sylvester McCoy and Bonnie Lankwood. Right. Really, really enjoyable stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not her. It's the material that they were given to work with. It is the material and the time that it was being produced and the budget and the l- production and the lack of concern, I think. Yeah, absolutely. All of those things. You know, yeah. and, be, and at that point, Michael Grade had already decided that Doctor Who was done. Yeah. And it was just how... You know, I think I think he started uh, scheduling up against Coronation Street, which <laughs> made it yeah. even harder harder for young kids to watch because I'm sure their parents would rather watch the soap rather than Doctor Who. Yeah, and I mean, let's uh, let's also let's give a quick sidebar for you know our American listeners. This time, and I think it still is relatively unusual. Um, well, no, it's not because of the internet, but at this time it was. Very, very unusual for a British TV, for a British household to have more than one television set. Mm-hmm. Um, so this idea, you know, that the kids would have a TV in their room or something like like I understood used to happen in America. You know, you would only have one television. So if, if the parents were watching Coronation Street, you could not watch Doctor Who right. because there was only one TV set. And the reason there was only one TV set is because there there is and there was and there still is a TV license. And if you had more than one TV set, you had to have two television licenses. Right. Um, so it became twice as expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, it's then still, I think the UK was less of a consumer society than the United States. And televisions were really, really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, not, so not, no VCRs then? Or, I mean, it was it was 87. Not really. Okay. I mean, not... I mean, not they're expensive items. Again, they were they were expensive pieces of kit. Yeah. Um, and again, if you if you think about Coronation Street, which in general was not watched by people who had lots of money, hmm. even then you you know you have you have a situation where you know you you definitely wouldn't have a, the ability to watch the show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so killing off <laughs> or uh, 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 restricting the supply of new eyeballs, young young people eyeballs to yes. keep the show. Keep yep. the show current and going. So exactly. I think, it, and they also moved it to a school night, and it's just... a school night. You got homework. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, if it becomes a struggle, then you're a kid. I mean, of course, you know, you're going to give up at some point and just mm-hmm. go and do something else instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we're going to walk through from November 1987 through to cancellation, which was in uh, December 1989, which I guess it wasn't officially canceled, but put on, uh, uh, put out to pasture, so to speak. Right. They they didn't want to announce a cancellation because uh, of uh, the previous of, experience that they the argy bargy that happened the previous the yeah. previous time they tried to do it. Yeah. Yeah, so we're going to watch one a week, aren't we? Or yeah, something? I think so. And yeah, we'll, I think we'll so, have yeah. inter- we'll have interruptions for Scratchman and Gallifrey and other things that pop up. But we are that is the general viewing plan for the Metabulous Two for the next few next few weeks, next next month or so. Next that we are so. doing uh, an Ace retrospective, and we're just going to watch the character of Dorothy uh, develop as the doctor or professor's companion. As the professor's companion, yeah. And I think it's going to be fun because it's these uh, these uh, episodes I don't watch that often, um, mm-hmm. if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually it's going to be interesting for me to um, to watch these. And there's some classic moments. There's some classic cliffhangers coming up, I think. <laughs> and there's some... There, it's a mix of really good stories and ones that mm-hmm. are low in the fan polls of appreciation. So let's see what we let's see what the Metabolus two think because everyone knows what we think is really really what what everyone else thinks as well. I mean, we're very much we're we're leaders of opinion. We're, yeah. Well, we're the toddlers of the Doctor Who podcasting world. If it if if we don't think it, then it doesn't exist, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, come with us if you will mm-hmm. on a journey yeah. through through Ace through the late nineteen Dor- eighties, <laughs> the late nineteen eighties, and Dorothy, she's Dorothy Gale or something. McShane, I think. McShane, I think, is it. her name that she got in the uh, New Adventures. Yeah, that's it, McShane. Hmm. Anyway, cool. All right, good. So we'll start that next week, won't we? With Dragonfire. Awesome. All right. Uh, Until next week, thank you for listening to episode 104 of the Metabolus 2 podcast. I have been talking with Ben. And I have been talking with David. And have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.